great to be here with you all. Thank you all for, uh, yeah, thank you all for having me here. Um, before I read my text, I do have a, uh, as, as, by way of introduction, small qualifier here. Um, what we're going to find in our text is the institution of, well, it's, he's called a bond servant, but the institution of slavery, which was actually a common practice up until um, fairly recently, thank God, um, uh, we've, we've progressed beyond that. It's not abolished all across the world. There's still ways in which we see slavery happening. Um, but a lot of people will think sometimes that the Bible is condoning it. The Bible actually never condones it. God never says the institution of slavery is, is okay. It is interesting to think, just small qualifiers, that if sin hadn't entered the world, slavery would, as an institution would never have existed. In the ancient Near East and in Rome at this time, people would become indebted to somebody to a point where they weren't able to pay and then uh, at some point they would uh, either voluntarily voluntarily I'll try and turn it back on. Yeah. Check, check. Okay. That they would voluntarily enter the service of another person to pay off their debt. Or, at the worst of it, they would be taken into, uh, uh, into slavery to pay off their debt. But it would not exist if sin hadn't entered the world. Dave Ramsey says it in, uh, in, in his financial piece that we only know what slavery is like, for the most part, as we become indebted to a lender. Where your check every month as it comes in goes to somebody else and it hurts. He says, borrowing from Proverbs. We see that the word doulos here in, uh, uh, that's used, can, it's a broad range of meaning. So, uh, uh, so Philemon is a master of Onesimus, um, but the word bondservant is translated here in the ESV because it could mean that he was just a servant to uh, almost in a permanent sense or until he paid off his debt to Philemon, Onesimus is, which we'll find out uh, in just a minute. But the gospel actually undermines the institution of slavery, and I think we see that in this text, and we'll explore it some more uh, as we go on. In Ephesians 5, when Paul talks about slavery, he says, or talks about bondservants and masters, he says that God shows no partiality, and that's the truth. He shows no partiality. The Bible doesn't condone slavery. I just want to make that small qualifier before we go on and, and read about it. And if you have any other questions, we can, we can talk more about it, um, or you can ask Luke about it. But let me read our text. We're in Philemon. I think what, uh, what's printed is 3 through verse uh, 19. So let me read that for us. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and the, of the faith that you have toward, Lord, uh, toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. 
I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might, be, might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted for, from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this to you with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even of your own self. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you that you've preserved it for us. And thank you that in your word we do find uh, words of life, words of hope, words of your good gospel that uh, tells us and shows us uh, the work, the redemptive work you've accomplished in uh, your very son, Jesus. I pray that your Holy Spirit would make your word clear to us. We would come to know you more and understand you more deeply uh, and your gospel more deeply as we explore this passage together. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I was preparing for this message, I decided to Google search uh, ridiculous requests that people make on, in, well, people in the service industry potentially, and the top of the list was um, hotels. I don't know if anybody works for a hotel or anything, but I found this list of um, ridiculous requests that were made of hotel staff for, uh, for, for their guests. And uh, one of them was, somebody asked for a glass of water to be brought to their room every hour through the night, on the hour. Ridiculous. Somebody asked for a bath of honey to be drawn for them. No idea why, I don't know. Um, maybe it's soothing. Somebody asked for 16 pillows for a single guest. Any, any people here sleep with more than five pillows? I think at some point it becomes crazy. 16 pillows. And the, the funniest one that I found was somebody wanted the sound of goat bells to be played while they slept. They must have grown up on a farm. There are ridiculous requests being made of people in the service industry. And if you work there, you probably know it. But as we... As we enter into the Christian life, sometimes the demands that God makes on us, the things that he calls us to, feel like ridiculous requests. Feel like things that we don't have the ability to, to, to navigate, to change in ourselves. You see, Jesus has a mission that he's on to bring the kingdom of God to bear. He's doing that through his church, in us. But he wants to bring us under a different set of values than we're used to. He wants to rearrange things in our lives to the point where we fit a pattern that he set for us. In short, he's wanting to make us more like himself, make us respond to situations more like he responded to situations in his earthly ministry. Well, my question for us this morning is, how does he endeavor to accomplish that in us? How does he, what's the most effective means of producing this lasting change that he desires to see in us? It's a question that all of us are thinking on some level, how do I change? It's a question that we're trying to figure out. Well, I think what Paul's doing here in the book of Philemon is addressing this question, and we'll explore it more as we go along. We want to look at three things together, the characters in our story, a weighty request, and a gospel guarantee. So first, let's look at the characters. Paul's writing this letter to Philemon. You know, the apostle Paul, if you've uh, read your Bible at all, you know that he's written a, almost a majority of the New Testament. 
We find him uh, older, uh, an older man now, as he says. He's imprisoned in Rome, um, and he's probably in about his 60s, maybe. But he's a little bit older, and he's, uh, and he's an apostle. That means that he has great authority within the church. He's being inspired to write the scriptures. He's been inspired to, to challenge the church to grow, to become more Christ-like. And in this instance, he's writing to a brother, uh, Philemon, to, uh, to, to, to appeal to him for Onesimus. Onesimus is a bondservant to Philemon. But Onesimus, for whatever reason, we don't know why he was indebted to uh, and a servant of Philemon, but Onesimus, uh, like many people in the uh, uh, bond servants or slaves in, in, at this time, would run away instead of outright rebelling or trying to take over their, uh, uh, the, the, their masters, they would actually run. It was the, the easier thing to do. But as they ran, sometimes masters, as they were super harsh, they would chain them with collars or they would mark them or, or make them wear jewelry that signified their place so that people would know that they were on the run so that they could be brought back to them. I don't think Onesimus bore any of those marks because... He's, uh, he's, he's brought in and uh, apparently begins to serve Paul and, uh, and, and becomes like a child to him and is useful to him is what he says. But he's run away, and in verse 18 of the text, we see that he's, Paul says, if he's wronged you at all, um, uh, I'll charge that to my account is what he says. So it's possible that as he fled, he took money from Philemon. He probably still owes him a debt that he hasn't paid, and now he's, he's, uh, he's on the run and probably took money. Philemon, the next character we see is, uh, and who we want to focus a majority of our time on, is he's a, a wealthy Christian who probably encountered Paul while he was at Ephesus in his, uh, uh, his uh, second missionary journey. He became a believer, and, uh, and, and it, uh, apparently in, there in Colossae, where he lives, has a church meeting in his home. So as Paul's writing him this letter, he's actually not just writing it to him, he's writing it for the church for them to be able to, to interact with this and see the way in which Philemon interacts with Paul's appeal. Paul commends him for his faith, for his service, and tells him uh, that he's a, uh, he's a believer. He's one of those that he actually trusts. We see that in verses 4 through 7. But to get into the, 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 the majority of where I want to spend our time, what is this request that he makes of Philemon? Of Philemon? What is it? What's the request, and what's the way in which Paul makes the request? Let's spend some time looking at this. First, we need to see that Philemon is making a request of Onesimus. He's actually telling Onesimus to go back to the person he still uh, has a debt with. Even though he's free now in Christ, he tells him, go back and reconcile now, not with just a master, but with your brother. The person who I think about in this story that must have, been, uh, 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 must have thought the request was crazy was, uh, was Onesimus. He says, go back. If I'm Onesimus, I'm like, Heck no, Paul, you're crazy. There's no way I'm going back. I've earned my freedom now by running away. I know I'm a fugitive. I'll run for the rest of my life. There's no way I want to go back into service. But Paul tells him to keep his original commitment to Philemon, uh, Onesimus too, and he sends him along with his regards uh, with a letter. And so he's repentant. He's now a believer. And now Paul is telling him, making a request of him to go back to Philemon. But this request to Philemon... I think, is even weightier. Let's look at what he's saying. He says in verses 16, 16 through 19, let me read it again. Or 15. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. 
no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or he owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your own me except of your own self. And in verse, verse 21, he says, I'm confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Paul is, it's debated, but I think Paul is actually requesting that he accept Philemon back and that he free him. It's debated. But I think at the, the, the most of what he's actually requesting, he's saying you have no right to hold him his debt uh, and, and I'll make provision for, for that payment, but you have no right to hold it over him anymore. You need to free him. Welcome him back as a brother. Welcome him back uh, uh, as one who is on the same level playing field as you. You see, Philemon had the ability in, in Rome to punish Onesimus. He could have strictly, uh, uh, he could have punished him with physical uh, pain. He could have uh, uh, at the very worst, could have uh, disposed of him. He was subject to harsh punishment in the Roman world for his crime. Running away was less dangerous than rebellion, one scholar says, but it was still a har- uh, hazardous enterprise. Slave cl- catchers were sent after, uh, after the slaves to bring them back, and Roman law forbade the harboring of fugitives. So as people were running away, they were always in danger of being caught and, and delivered back. It must have made it a, a risky life for them. He tells Onesimus to go back. And then he tells Philemon, powerfully, appeals to him and says, don't treat him the way that you are able to treat him. You have the right to. You're free to hold Onesimus accountable for his crime against you. But he makes an appeal to him. He says, treat him as a brother, not a bondservant. Not as one who's run away from his obligations, but as one who's on the same playing field as you. It's amazing. I think he's undermining the institution of, uh, that, that he's a part of, of slavery. But let's look at, for, uh, uh, for a brief moment, the manner of, of Paul's request. How does he ask him? How does he ask him? Uh, uh, to, to, how does he appeal to him? How does he make him try to get him to do what he wants for him to do? He says uh, in, in, in verse 8, Though I am bold enough to command you, in Christ to command you to do what's required, yet for love's sake I pr- choose to appeal to you. Paul has the ability as an apostle to charge him, to command him even, to do what he's asking him to do. You know, there are great implications here for those of you who are, who are parents, especially those of you who are parents with older kids. The easiest thing for us to do as parents, as our kids begin to rebel, is to what? Hold your authority over them. And out of compulsion, right, obligation, call them to account. How many of you, when you were kids, heard your parents say, uh, because I said so. How many of you parents say that now? I said I would never say it, but I've said it countless times. Because I said so. Because I'm in authority, don't you see? Paul has the ability to say that. You know what's awesome about grandparents, though, is grandparents, you, this, I think this is why you spoil your kids, is because you know you've tried to, out of compulsion, get your kids to do what you want them to do, but you realize the way I can get my grandkids to do what I want them to do is to spoil them. Just to actually be gracious to them. And as I do, then they, they love me. They give me all the affection and attention and they do what I ask them to do. It's awesome. Parents have an issue with, uh, with, with, with trying to get our kids to, uh, to behave in a certain way. 
to modify kids' behavior for, for good reason, to hold the law up and say, I'm in charge, abide by this. And there's nothing, in some sense, there's nothing wrong with holding our kids to, to higher standards, but what happens when our, all we do is, is out of compulsion, try to get our kids to obey out of fear or out of guilt or shame? It doesn't actually produce lasting change, does it? It actually produces resentment at some point as kids get older and they realize, mom and dad, you're crazy, you aren't as smart as you think you are, and now I'm going to do this on my own, even though they're I, I, I work with college students, 18 to 22, 23-year-olds, and they think they know better than you parents, but they don't. Uh, I try to remind them of that all the time. But it's because they're bucking up against compulsion, up, up against a, a command that's being placed on them that they don't feel maybe that they can accomplish. Tim Keller says that Jesus Christ as an example will crush you. You will never be able to live up to it. But Jesus Christ as the Lamb will save you. On the cross, Jesus is getting what we deserve so that we can get what he deserves. When you see that this great reversal is for you, when you see that he gave up all of his cosmic wealth and came into poverty so that you could be spiritually rich, it changes you. The compulsion is dissipating. You're going to be so content that you'll look reckless. What Paul is appealing to Philemon about looks reckless. What he's asking of Philemon would be reckless. His neighbors, Roman neighbors, would look at Philemon like he was crazy if he had brought Onesimus back in and Onesimus isn't a servant anymore he's actually a brother to him and is eating at his table with him the dynamic has shifted it would be insane but how does he how does he try to get to the point where uh, Philemon does what he asked him to do well I think he's appealing to the gospel he says that instead of out of compulsion I'm I'm appealing to you out of love Though I'm bold enough to command you, though I'm bold enough to hold my authority up and say, submit to this authority, he actually says, I don't want to do that. Out of love, I'm going to appeal to you. I'm going to treat you as a brother to me, and I'm going to ask you to consider the gospel. How does God want to produce change in us? There's this great scene, as I'm reflecting over the uh, crucifixion passage, there's a great scene in Mark. I was just, we went over it this uh, semester with students. But one of my favorite scenes is when the centurion, Jesus breathes his last, and the centurion says, this man truly was the son of God. How does that change actually occur? Well, it's not because Jesus looks down and says, I'm going to crush all of you people who for doing this to me. What does he do? How does he die? He dies praying for his enemies. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He dies breathing his last, crying out to, to the Father about being forsaken. He's considering those that are around him and praying for them. He dies differently. And the, the, the only thing that the soldier can do at that time is, is pro, pro, proclaim, this guy's different. How does change actually happen in his heart? Well, it happens as he witnesses the way in which the Savior dies uh, on the cross. God wants to shift our behavior, but more than just shifting, modifying our behavior, he wants to change our very hearts. He wants to make us, through his love, be those that would serve each other. He wants us to live out of the freedom that we have to make choices, but to make the right choice. In Galatians 5.13, Paul says, you're called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, to gratify your flesh. Instead, through love, serve one another. It's out of freedom that God calls us to change. What can change us so deeply that it could be lasting for all of our lives? What can change Philemon so deeply that he responds now and treats a guy he's able to 
to, uh, to, to hold accountable? How, how does he do this to get him to change as a brother and, and see him as a brother? Well, he shows him grace. God desires to go more deeply than we want to. He wants to go deeper into our lives. What changes us? It's not the law. The law shows us a standard that we can't reach. Grace shows us a God who reaches down to us, meets the standard for us, and draws us in by his grace into fellowship with him. In Titus 2.11, Paul says it's the grace of God that's appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And that grace is what trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace changes us. The implications of this are far-reaching. Jesus is asking of you in your life more than you ever imagined. More than you ever imagined. So that's a question. What do you, if he wants to rearrange your life, what is it that you hold off limits? What is it that you hold on to and say, I can't give this up? Who's the person that you can't forgive? Who's the, what are the things that you hold on to for security, for, 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 uh, for wealth and uh, the things that you hold on to? Those of you, it might look like control. How is it that God is wanting to take, uh, open your hands and stop you from trying to control so much? What about some of you, he's asking to give up comforts to, to uh, promote the comforts of other people and care for them. For some of us, it's our agenda and our plans for the world. What Paul is calling to Philemon is to re, a rearranging of his life, to come under a kingdom set of values. Keller goes on, it's the, the end of that, the quote that I started earlier. He says, a Christian can respond, Philemon can respond, it's not the end of the world if somebody takes advantage of me or if my money is gone or if my career doesn't develop as I like. I'm not controlled by that fear anymore. You're replacing the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of God. If you're living for yourself, spending all your money on yourself, striving for power, focusing on your success and your reputation, you may be having a wonderful party, but according to the Bible, that kingdom is going to be inverted. The days of that kingdom are numbered. I think Paul, God, through Paul here, as he's bringing the gospel to bear in Philemon's life, is undermining the institution of slavery. I think he is. He's bringing societal change that the gospel can produce. In Galatians 3, Paul says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All of you are one in Christ. Paul is calling for Philemon to change the dynamic of his relationship with somebody he, who owes him a debt. He's wanting societal change to happen, I believe. And if God has given everything infinitely more than, than you ever will, there's nothing he can't ask from you. So that's a question, church. Is what is it that we hold off limits? What is it that you hold tightly to? The sad thing is that what happens in our, whenever we do disobey, whenever we do see the standard that God sets and he wants for us to change and change the way that we relate to somebody who's hurt us or the way in which we relate to our money, what does that show when we say, no, God, I'm not going to do it? I'd like to think about this. What would happen if Philemon had said No. He's legally able to bring uh, Onesimus back and to keep him as the same, in the same status that he had. He's legally able to do that. But what does it prove if he doesn't say yes to Paul? What does it prove that's going on in his own heart? He's free to dis- disregard what Paul says. He's legally able to disregard what Paul is saying. He could even punish Onesimus if he sees fit. But what does it say if he doesn't? 
So uh, I just, with my older boy, JJ, I just finished reading The Hobbit. Has anybody read the story? Um, it's a great story. One of my favorite, if you haven't read it or if you haven't seen the movie, I'm going to spoil it for you. Sorry. Um, but there's this great scene at the end of the book. Yeah, if you know the story, it's uh, Bilbo Baggins, um, and uh, at the request of Gandalf, goes along with some dwarves to go back and, and, and defeat a dragon and take back a gold in their land that was taken from them. And that's their whole journey. So the majority of the book is them making their way through perilous, uh, this perilous adventure to get back to confront this dragon. When, uh, at the very end of the story, they find the dragon. Bilbo, has, because he has a magic ring that allows him to be invisible, goes and reasons with the dragon and finds out who he is and sees him and, uh, and, and uh, gets away barely. I love this story. He runs away down a tunnel that he had come through and Smog threw fire at him, blew fire at him, and it like burned the back of his hair. I'd love to have seen Bilbo after that. It would have been awesome. But the dragon at that point, he runs back to, uh, Bilbo runs back to, to the dwarves, to Thorin and the others, and Smog thinks they've escaped. So he ends up uh, destroying the entrance to the cave where they had gotten in and decides to go pay a visit to Lake Town, who he thinks that's where they went, or they at, at most had given him provisions, given this, this, this uh, 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 hobbit and these dwarves provisions to make it. So he goes off and he destroys Lake Town. Those of you who know the story, he destroys Lake Town. All but a third of the people, I think, survive. But there's one guy, Bard, who stands up against him, shoots an arrow into the one spot of the dragon that, that could penetrate him, and it, it, it slays the dragon. All the while, the dwarves and Bilbo realize the dragon's gone, and they still go, start going to look at the gold, and they realize this is our, this is our spoils. We, the dragon will deal with him later. They realize the dragon's coming back, and they go hide. All the while, while this is going on, somebody else slays the dragon. Well, as Bard and these others come together, they decide the dwarves must have been eaten, so let's go back and take the, uh, take the gold for ourselves, and let's repair our town, let's get back to uh, what we need to be, um, and let's, let's become wealthy. They come back along with the elves, to the, the mountain, not to find uh, the dwarves defeated. They find the dwarves. And there's this great scene where, uh, and this is what I thought about, if, if Philemon says no, what happens in his heart? What's going on in his heart? He's, uh, and I thought about Thorin. Well, they come and, and, and Bard requests not all of the gold. He says, I slayed the dragon. You didn't have to deal with the dragon. Give me gold that was taken from my family. And give us some gold so that we can rebuild our town. But Thorin looks at him and he says, How dare you come at me like thieves, ready to make war with me and steal my gold? It's what's going on in his heart? Greed. But did he earn the gold? He didn't have to kill the dragon. They just got lucky. But he says no. He says, There's no way I'm going to hold, uh, I'm going to give you something. Uh, because you're coming to make war for me. What happens in our hearts when God comes to us and he says, I want you to give up this, uh, your sense of control or whatever it is, give up your, uh, 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 your home and as you invite people in to a stranger so that you may, they can dine with you. What happens in our hearts when we say no? Well, we hold on to these things that captivate and, and attract us more than what uh, than, than God does. Paul is appealing to the gospel because it has the power to shift our relationships, shifts the dynamic of all of our relationships and who we are at our very core. What's awesome is that he's calling for Philemon to now treat somebody free, I think free a slave, 
to treat him as one who, uh, uh, who was his own brother, he invites him back in. Philemon could approach this and say, uh, say no. But if Philemon begins to think, I've never been a slave. He might have been born with wealth. He, he might have actually had never known what it was like to have somebody have authority uh, over him, maybe uh, for a long time. But he appeals to the gospel. And if Philemon is being honest with himself, and he understands grace, he can see the way in which that he has at one time been a slave. You see, at one point, Philemon, before he came to know Jesus, was a slave. He was given over to a different master and him, his flesh and the devil. And God came in, not whenever he accomplished it, but he came in voluntarily, God did, to show him his love and to free him from slavery before he could even do anything about it. God had shown Philemon grace and freed him from his slavery. That's why Paul is call, calls the church to look at their freedom and act out of their freedom is because they were at one time we all were at one time slaves. And Jesus has come to do what uh, is necessary to set us free. God's calling Philemon now to put the best interests of someone else over his own. Finally, to conclude, our last point is this. What's so great about this passage is how Paul concludes his section here. He tells him, this is what I'm appealing to you, not out of compulsion, but out of grace. I'm appealing to you so that you would treat him differently. But in verse 18, he says, but if he owes you anything, I'll pay it. Paul says, if you decide not to free him and to, to keep his debt and hold it over his head, I'll come in and pay that debt. He says, if you're unwilling, I'll pay it. What's awesome is he makes uh, Philemon, he basically appeals to him in a way that Philemon can't refuse. He has to treat his uh, his brother uh, Onesimus now differently. How? Well, because a debt is being paid. It says, even if you're not willing to forgive the debt, I'll pay the debt. Charge it to me. You see, uh, 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 in Acts 27, 28, we see Paul's in Rome living under, uh, uh, with, being guarded by soldiers and house arrest, living on his, uh, it's intentional, Luke is there, about saying he's living on his own dime. He has the, the money to pay it. But imagine if Philemon says, says no. He says, make this exchange. As he comes in, Onesimus comes back to you. I'm willing to pay the debt if you want to hold it against him. And I want to purchase his way in. When he comes back to you, I want you to treat him the way that I deserve to be treated. So if Paul shows up at Philemon's place, Philemon, or, uh, Paul gets special treatment, right? He's an apostle. He says, I want you to treat Onesimus the way that you would treat me coming into your midst. Why? And why should Philemon say yes? Well, because that's exactly what Jesus has done for Philemon. There is this guarantee that's been made of this exchange that's happened. You see, in the gospel, we have a God who has every right to treat us the way that our sins deserve, but instead he takes Jesus, his own son, and treats him the way that our sins deserve so that we could come in uh, as God's children and be treated the way that Jesus deserves to be treated, as his very children. When Paul is asking Philemon to do this, he's asking Philemon to do it because God can ask anything of him. There's nothing uh, that God is asking for Philemon to do here, that Paul is asking for Philemon to do, that God hasn't already done for him in infinitely greater measure. He's already freed him. He is 
he is, uh, he is now a son of God because Jesus was exchanged for him. Do you see, if you see that's what Jesus has done for you, if you do, there is no thing that God could ask of you that would seem so demanding if that's the case. I pray that we would know that more deeply um, today. Let's pray together.